A reading from Luke chapter 20. They no longer dared to ask him any question, but he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we come this morning uh, seeking you, seeking to meet you, to know you. So many of us come here with our doubts, our concerns, our fears, perhaps even our boredom. Uh, others of us are here just excited because we are looking forward to connecting with you once again. But regardless of where we find ourselves and however we ended up here in this place this morning, we beg that you would open our eyes so we can see you, our ears so we can hear from you, and our hearts would be softened, that we would hear and experience the power of the gospel. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the last several weeks, uh, we've been looking at the confrontations that Jesus has had in the temple since he entered it and drove out the money changers. And if you remember, he declared, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And since that time, he's been saying over and over again, the temple is a place to meet God, a place of prayer, and you all have corrupted it. And he's been in there teaching daily. And what we found out is he started having all of these confrontations in there with the religious leaders. Daily, they were challenging him. The scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, they were questioning him about his politics. We saw that, about uh, the coin and giving to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. They were interrogating his theology. We saw a little bit of that last week about the resurrection and questions about that. They inquired about the source of his authority to discredit him and all of this to just try to trap him. And today we see that Jesus has a question of the day for them. And it is a question that answers all the other questions that are being asked, that have been posed. And this morning I just want us to briefly look at this passage together and reflect on what God is trying to show us through the question that Jesus poses. So first of all, I want us to look at this, the conundrum that Jesus actually poses. Because, you know, as I've said all throughout the chapter, Jesus has been on the defensive and he has been fielding their questions and he asks this final question of the day. And it's not just to the hearers in his time and his place, but it is actually to us. And he puts forth his argument 
that what he claims about himself is absolutely true. And he does this with a theological question. And he asks this question, how can the teachers of the law say that the Christ, that is the Messiah, is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, and he's quoting Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? It's, kind of, it's, a, it's a theological riddle in one sense. So what is Jesus saying here? Let's try to understand this and try to figure out how this applies to us. First of all, Jesus begins with a premise, an assumption that everyone believed at the time and actually understood, which is this, that all the prophets of the Old Testament believed in Messiah, in the Christ who was going to come, that he would come and put everything right in Israel. That was the understanding. That was the hope. And you've heard of us uh, about this over and over again if you've been coming to grace the past few weeks. All the prophets said the Messiah would be a descendant of David in his lineage and therefore his son. Now that, that makes sense. So Jesus asked, so if that's the case, how do you explain Psalm 110? By the way, this is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. It's a psalm written by David. And in this psalm, David talks about the Messiah that God sends who will defeat all of God's enemies, the Christos. But in the psalm, David refers to the Messiah as my Lord. And the question is, why would that be? Because if you're foreseeing that one of your descendants would be the Messiah, you would never call him my Lord. You'd probably call him my son, right? And so Jesus' final question is, how can he be David's Lord and David's son? See? And the only answer is, the Messiah can only be David's son if he is also God's son. So what Jesus is saying is, you believe the Messiah is only a human figure who will be the best king the earth has ever known, which is pretty great in and of itself. But it, that is the case how do you explain what the Bible is saying here? That the Messiah will not be just a human king, but he will be the son of God. This will be David's son, but also God's son that comes into David's lineage, both man and God, who will not just put down the political enemies of Israel, but to defeat the enemy, sin, to defeat death and evil for the world once and for all. And Jesus is challenging all of the religious leaders, all of his hearers with this. He's saying, you all have a filter over your thinking and your hearing. You've been looking at me with a human paradigm of what the Messiah is supposed to be like. And he said, you guys actually haven't been reflecting on what God has been saying in the Bible. Because the Bible actually says so much more about Messiah than what they have been focusing on. And Jesus is saying, only I can be the Messiah that the Bible describes. All the questions you've been asking me about my politics, about my theology, where does my authority come from? How dare you, Jesus, come in and cleanse the temple? All of this is answered in the fact that he is Messiah, the Christ. The one who has the authority, who is God himself, and the one who has come to set 
all things right? And this is the question of the day he's putting before all of his hearers and to us today. So what do we learn from this? And here's the first thing I was thinking about. You know, just like the crowds, just like the religious leaders that Jesus was speaking to, we all have assumptions of who we want Messiah Jesus to be and what we probably would like him to tackle in our own lives. I mean, I think if I asked that question to every single one of you, we'd probably have little different answers to what we hope Jesus would fix. And we have an assumption that, you know what, unless Jesus, you take care of all of these things. Now, I kind of like you. I'm going to give you a little bit of my allegiance, but I'm not going all in giving you everything, all my trust, all my hopes, all my faith. I'm not going to put all of that in you because I'm kind of testing the waters. I want to see if you're going to come through for me. But Jesus is inviting us to go to the scriptures and see him for who actually he is. See, if you see Jesus in the scriptures, you will not be able to explain him other than to say that this is God himself. I need to relate to him differently. I can't sit here just testing him to see if he's going to answer every question I have, if he's going to answer every prayer I've been praying for, to fix every little thing in my life before I want to give everything to him, he says, no, no, no. Go search the scriptures. If I am who I say I am, then you need to relate to me as God himself who is for you and you need to give yourself to me. And that's a hard thing. Because what do you expect Jesus to be for you? I think that's part of the question. Are you waiting for him to perform a miracle? You know, take away your suffering. Punish the injustices you've experienced in your life or the things you see in the world before you're ready to trust him? We come with all sorts of expectations to this relationship with Jesus and he asks us to get to know him as he is presented in the scriptures. You know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, if you think about who they were, they were all over the map theologically, politically. They were conservatives. They were progressives. They were skeptics. They were non-religious and also incredibly observant religious people. And you know what? They all misunderstood Jesus because they wanted Jesus to be something for themselves and for their thinking or for their group or for their people. And they missed him. So the question of the day Jesus puts forth is, who does the scripture say Messiah is? Because that is the most important question. It really is not so contingent on what we think Jesus should be or who we think he should be. But it's really about who he says he is and do we adjust ourselves to him. I mean, it's a very relevant question for us today. Jesus keeps saying to us, get to know me in the scriptures because when you do, you realize I am almighty God who is holy, who is also compassionate, patient, gracious, and merciful. And his argument about who he is transcends all cultures and it isn't something that's only accessible only to a particular time and place. 
And it's not just for those with a particular temperament and predisposition to believing in religious things. And if you have doubts, wrestling with the Bible, like the scriptures say, come bring your doubts. Jesus has been doing this all throughout the gospel. And he just says, come and get to know me. I'm going to surprise you. I want to bless you in ways you haven't even thought you needed. Now, if you're struggling to believe, or if you have any doubts, and that's all of us here, you want to do something about it, the one thing Jesus continues to do is to say, come, be patient with me, dig in a little deeper, listen, think, consider, be open to what I have to say about myself. That's the first thing we get in his question of the day. He's asking you, put the time in. Come to me in prayer. Ask. Seek the Lord while he may be found. He wants to be found. He wants to be known. He wants to reveal himself to you. But how about we come and say, Lord, how about you start changing the questions I'm asking about you? Help me to grow to be able to trust and to see and to taste that you're really, really who you say you are. The Almighty One who has come in the flesh for us, who loves us, but who is also holy, who is saying, I am here for you. That's the first thing we see here. That is in the conundrum of the question. And then we want to switch into looking at this piety that Jesus commends this morning. Because in this last part about the widow, we see a whole lot about how all of this fleshes out. Because what does the little vignette about the widow have to do with the confrontations that Jesus has had? You know, why bring in this story of the widow from the beginning of Luke 21? You know, and I've always thought about it maybe as an unrelated, heartwarming story. You just kind of tack on to the rest of the narrative here. But in studying this passage, I realize it is really kind of the climax and the completion of what Jesus has been arguing for through all of chapter 20. Because this is the answer to the question of the day. Not in kind of a theological way or a theoretical way. But this is what I think Jesus is saying. Is you will never get the certainty and the faith that you need unless you see what he is teaching us through the widow. Through the widow. You know, widows have been very important all throughout the Gospel of Luke. There's about seven different references to widows starting way back in chapter 2 with Anna the prophetess who's a widow praying. And you've heard about the widows in Nain. And even prior in the prior section, you see the Sadducees coming and asking questions about a woman who's been widowed six times and Jesus referring to her in a different way even in that parable. And the widow becomes a very prominent figure in the Gospel of Luke. And you know why? Because he is telling us something. Jesus is going to blast those who use religion and display their piety to receive glory and honor for themselves while not caring for the poor and the vulnerable, which the widow represents. Because in verses 45 to 47, it says this, And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses 
and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. That, those are scary words. Greater condemnation. It's not like you're just going to be condemned. You're going to get greater condemnation. I got to go unpack that on a different day and another day. But that's like, whoa, what is going on here? You know, think about who the widows were again. They were the poorest of the poor. And Jesus is criticizing these religious leaders who love to be recognized, honored because of their piety. They're self-aggrandizing. They're narcissistic. They are eloquent. They're impressive. But they are pretentious, you know? And you know how you know, Jesus is saying? They devour widows' houses, meaning they are unjust people. And they will receive greater condemnation. And what Jesus is doing here is he's drawing on the theme that is prevalent throughout the Old Testament that God identifies himself intimately with the poor. God says, when you insult the poor, you insult me. When you give to the poor, you give to me. Over and over again, he says this throughout the Old Testament. God is saying, my heart is so bound up and tethered to the suffering and the needs of the poor, the orphan, the widow, that if you oppress them, you're moving against me. If you ignore them, you're ignoring me. And Jesus not only draws on this theme, but we also know that he actually develops it in his own teaching. Because if you go back to Matthew 25, which is a very, very sobering chapter, Jesus envisions the day of the Lord, the judgment day. And he says, everyone is standing before the judgment seat and the Lord is on the throne. And he is looking down at the group of people and he says to them, for I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. Depart from me. And all the people ask, wait, Lord, when did we see you hungry? Lord, when did we see you cold? Or when did we see you, you thirsty or suffering? And Jesus is saying, I am so connected to the poor that when you reject them, you're rejecting me. Jesus isn't saying helping the poor is going to save you, but he is saying if you have no room in your heart for the poor, the widow, the stranger, the foreigner, the prisoner, then you have no room in your heart for God. And this is how strongly he identifies with the widow. Then he turns to see all these people coming into the temple courts and he sees the rich coming in to give their offering. And then he says, he saw a poor woman put in two copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of their poverty, put in all she had to live on. The two copper coin, or two lepti, that's the technical word, they were the smallest coins in circulation. Think about it. They're worth less than our penny. And he says the amount of her gift was the smallest, but her sacrifice was the greatest. And he goes so far as to say she put in everything she had 
Did you notice that? Everything she had to live on her whole life, okay? She put in her whole life, literally her physical life. She gave away her life. You know why? Because those two coins were probably what she would have used to buy her groceries. So what is he saying? When the rich give, and let's be honest here, when we give, maybe that's a more accurate way to think about it. You know, I think we all do this, which is we give out of our margins. We all do. When we give, are we eating any differently than before we gave? Probably not. Do we spend less on our clothes, fitness membership, streaming fees, whatever else? Probably not. You know why? Because we give out of what we can afford. You see? Are we traveling less because we give sacrificially to God's work? We don't give so much as for it to actually cut into our lifestyles. You see? We just give our money. But this widow, and this is the comparison he's making, when she put in her two copper coins, what she was doing was not only giving her giving away her ability to buy food, but she was giving away what little control she had left of her life. She's saying, I'm trusting you, God, completely. And when the rest of us give, we don't really give up any control to our lives. We still do everything we've ever wanted to do before. Nothing changes. But when the widow gave, she didn't just give money. She gave her life. She lost all control of her life. And she said, I am trusting God. So why is Jesus telling us this after all the animosity and the arguments of the chapter prior? And this is what it's about. For all the uh, theological and intellectual arguments the scribes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees were having with Jesus about spiritual authority and about salvation, Jesus sums it all up in this simple comparison of true religion versus false religion. Those who trust in themselves for salvation versus those who trust in God's mercy and his grace. It's actually quite simple, you know. He doesn't separate out those who are secular atheists versus the religious. Did you notice he doesn't do that? He doesn't separate out... uh, those who actually go to the temple and those who don't. Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they both oppose Jesus. The religious conservatives are saying, you know, the way you control God and keep him far away is to obey as many of his rules as possible. That way you can have a whole part of your life where he won't be allowed to touch. Because you can say, God, I did what you asked me to You can have all of these things, but you can't touch this part of my life. I'm a pretty good person, so leave me alone. I've kept the law. I'm different than so-and-so. And And the progressive skeptics, they're saying, you know, here's how I'm going to have control over my life. I'm going to have nothing to do with you, God. I'll just do whatever I want. I don't have to pay attention, nor give any thought to what you say. But neither have the spiritual bravery which is what the widow has. She says, I fully trust you. I have no hope apart from your mercy. I trust in your love and care. And that means I can give up everything I have 
these two coins. And he's showing us the real differences, the one who is proud versus the one who fully trusts that they themselves can save themselves versus those who know they cannot. And it is all tied up in the example of the offering and of their lives. I mean, this woman gives up everything, you know? One commentator, James Edwards, puts it this way. He says, For Jesus, the value of a gift is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. Not how much is given, but how much is retained for self. Others give what they could spare. The widow spares nothing. Others give, their, give from their surplus. The widow gives from her need all she had to live on. I mean, that's an example of life change. That's what life, a changed life actually looks like. Uh, theologian Heiko Overman, he tells of a story of taking a trip to China years ago with a group. And they went to the city of Nanjing. And on a Sunday, they went to various churches all around the city. And he had an older Chinese woman who lives in Los Angeles in his group who was urging them to visit a church across the river from Nanjing, a poor church composed of farmers. So they get there and there's 900 people who are present for this service because they're so excited to worship God. And they wanted to hear from this sister, Mrs. Chang, who came all the way from America. So she gets up and she brings greetings from her church in Los Angeles. And she tells them how God has been working in their community, so much so the church is currently building a new addition to the building. After words of blessing for this church, she sits down. And at the close of the worship service, they invite Mrs. Chang back up to the front. And the pastor tells her, we were so excited to hear about what God is doing in your church. Thank you for coming. And we want you to have the morning offering to take back to Los Angeles so you and your church can continue to do God's work. They collected about $140. And here was what Heiko Obermann noticed. He said, you know, when their overflowing joy welled up in generosity, they weren't thinking about money or sacrifice or anything else. They gave because it was no longer about what I have for myself, what I don't have, but they began to realize something. God is at work in this community in Los Angeles, and we want to be a part of that. And you know what? The only way we begin to give ourselves in this way is to see that Jesus actually gave up all that he had for us. It is only when we go to the scriptures and begin to see in the Bible that Jesus is a God who gave up all of his treasure, who gave up all of his comforts so that we can experience the delight of God. Not only did he give up all of those things, you know what he did? He suffered. He suffered great injustice. He was humiliated. He was put up on a cross naked. He gave up his life. Why? Why did he do all of those things? Because he came to become impoverished so we would become wealthy in God through his grace and mercy that we would be his children adopted in. And you know what? Jesus is trying to say to the degree you begin to understand this, you begin to change. 
you grow in courage, confidence, generosity, hope. We grow in compassion and patience. Our lives become changed. See? This is the question he's putting before us. Like, do you see who I am? Because when that clicks with your life, you will not be the same. You will change just like the widow. And you will have new life and you will have the freedom to grow in generosity. Think about that this week as we move into Thanksgiving in this season of moving into Advent as we reflect on why Christ has come and the hope that he brings us and pray that God would change us to look more and more like his son. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you that this morning you give us your word, words of hope for us because we need this. Every single one of us here, including myself, we believe we can save ourselves. That we have great doubt that you will come through in every way that you promise. But we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would see the beauty of Jesus and all that he has claimed and accomplished on our behalf. Help us to grow in that, whether it's to be able to see it for the first time or to deepen us in that truth so that our lives would be transformed and so we would go out to serve you, Lord. We, we, we pray that you would give us a face like this widow had. We pray that we would follow you with all of our lives, and we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.